You ain't heard nothing yet. Get around, little bitch. What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make him an offer. You talking to me? Are you not entertained? I don't know who you are. Why so simple? When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. But when I'm bad, I'm better. He's the lion! Hello, and welcome back to the Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. Hope y'all had a great week. I am gearing up to be on set for the first time since the pandemic started. I just found out I got my negative COVID test about 10 minutes ago, and I don't even care that I'm going to be sweating my ass off in the desert. As long as I get to be back on set, I am pleased as punch. So let's get into the stuff. This week on Two Sentence Movie Reviews of Movies I Saw in a Movie Theater, we have Malignant. First off, I saw this at night alone, and even though there were other people in the theater with me, I really wish I hadn't seen this movie at night because the visuals are terrifying, even if the movie isn't like super duper scary, though I'd expect nothing less visual-wise from the dude who created the Saw franchise. Overall, it's scary, if implausible, and the concept is kind of a ripoff of the 1982 film Basket Case, but I liked it better than like Candyman. So, you know, take it with a grain of salt. No spoilers if you haven't seen Basket Case, but if you've seen Basket Case, it's very, it's the, the twist is the, the thing from Basket Case. On to this week's topic. This week, we're covering the history and legacy of one of the worst films ever made, but a film that nonetheless continues to have a strong fan base to this day. I'm talking about the disastrous independent film, The Room. Unlike Rocky Horror, I don't have like a nostalgic attachment to this film as I didn't see it until 2017. The night before I saw The Disaster Artist, a biopic about the events around the making of this film directed by James Franco. And I frankly couldn't bring myself to watch this movie again. I watched clips, but I couldn't put myself through watching the whole thing again as it's relatively burned into my brain anyway. But the prevailing memories I have of this movie is probably what drew it to the first place and made it a midnight movie staple and a cult classic. More than anything, I remember just laughing so hard because me and my friend I saw it with were so confused as what we were seeing. But damn it if we didn't have fun. Today, we're covering the origins of the friendship between two people who met in an acting class and how that friendship led to a film that can only be described as a cinematic paradox. A film that's so bad it's good, and that somehow found a fervent midnight screening audience nearly 20 years after its disastrous initial release. With that, let's take our places. It's showtime. Hi. Can I help you? Yeah, can I have a dozen red roses, please? Oh, hi, Johnny. I didn't know it was you. Here you go. That's me. How much is it? It'll be $18. Here you go. Keep the change. Hi, doggy. You're my favorite customer. Thanks a lot. Bye. Bye-bye. 
It all started in an acting class. 19-year-old Greg Sestero, whose book The Disaster Artist from 2011 was instrumental in writing this episode this week, was a member of the Jane Shelton Acting School in San Francisco. It was in this class that Greg met the eccentric and enigmatic Tommy Wiseau. Very little is known about Tommy Wiseau before this time or after or at all, really, including his age and much of what he said about himself to friends and co-workers and in interviews over the years is all very contradictory, to say the least. In The Disaster Artist, Sestero details his friendship with Wiseau and claims that he saw Wiseau's immigration papers at one point and saw that he was born sometime in the 1950s and was from the Eastern Bloc. A documentarian who researched Wiseau for his documentary, Room Full of Spoons, claimed that Wiseau was from Poland. This has been backed up by dialect experts whom have studied his speaking pattern. But of course, only Wiseau knows for certain, and there has been no definitive paperwork presented to prove any of that. In The Disaster Artist, Sestero says that Wiseau revealed to him through, quote, fantastical, sad, self-contradictory stories that as a young man, he moved to Strasbourg, where he adopted the name Pierre and worked as a dishwasher in a restaurant. Wiseau also described being wrongly arrested following a drug raid at a French hostel he was staying at and as a result was traumatized by his mistreatment by local police. This run-in in this version of how he ended up in America led him to immigrate to the United States to live with an aunt and uncle in Chalmette, Louisiana, where Wiseau claimed to have extensive relatives and in some interviews grew up there. Obviously with the accent, very unlikely. These claims have also not been verified, but Sestero mentions in his book that he did see pictures of Wiseau in his apartment that were taken in New Orleans. Whatever led to Wiseau moving to the U.S. and everything leading up to that, there have been several documentaries which have made attempts at figuring out that to little avail. Something we do know is that eventually Wiseau ended up in San Francisco where he met Greg Sestero. At the time, Wiseau worked as a street vendor selling toys near Fisherman's Wharf. Wiseau supposedly gained the nickname The Birdman for his bird toys, which led him to legally changing his name when he became a U.S. citizen to Thomas Pierre Wiseau, taking the French word for bird, Wiseau, and replacing the O with the W of his alleged birth name. His name's not even his actual name, and no, no one knows what his real name is. According to Sestero, Wiseau claims to have worked a variety of additional jobs in the San Francisco Bay Area, including as a restaurant busboy and a hospital worker, and at the time of their meeting, ran a business called Street Fashions USA that sold weird jeans at discounted prices. It was a business card from this company that Wiseau handed Sestero when they first met. Wiseau further claimed to have eventually purchased and rented out large retail spaces in and around San Francisco and Los Angeles, which made him stupidly rich. Cicero states the idea of Wiseau becoming wealthy so quickly via the jobs he claims to have had is implausible, which, yeah, I agree. Cicero suggests on several occasions in his book that many people involved with the production of The Room believe that the film was just a part of some money laundering scheme for organized crime and frankly were shocked when their checks didn't bounce, but Cicero himself considers anything illegal on his friend's part unlikely. 
Long story short, somehow this dude was and, well, is super loaded. So this dude has a ton of money. Why was he at an acting class? Well, he claimed to have been involved in a near-fatal car crash and as a result was hospitalized for several weeks. According to what Wiseau told Sestero, this incident was the turning point in Wiseau's life that led him to pursue his lifelong dreams of becoming an actor and director, ambitions that he had long neglected while pursuing financial security. So that's what landed Tommy Wiseau and Greg Sestero in the same acting class. Just two dudes chasing their dreams. As far as Sestero goes, he had worked briefly as a model in Europe before returning home to his parents in San Francisco while figuring out what to do next. He had dreamed of being an actor, filmmaker, etc. since he was 12 and had a few semi-professional acting gigs under his belt, including teeny tiny parts on an episode of Nash Bridges and in the film Patch Adams. After Wiseau gave a particularly awful rendition of the Stella scene from A Streetcar Named Desire in class, Sestero approached the man whom he described as pirate-like in his memoir. To paint you a picture if you've never seen what Tommy Wiseau looks like, he's got dyed raven black shoulder length hair and it looks very damaged from all of the dying. He often wears giant sunglasses and was like super duper fit. It's believed by some that he does this to hide his actual age. After class, Cicero asked to do a scene with this strange-looking dude. Wiseau was tepid at best at the prospect, but gave Cicero his business card anyway. After a few encounters, including a visit to Wiseau's uber-weird condo, Cicero became increasingly curious about the enigmatic man of indeterminable European descent. Anytime Sestero asks a question of Wiseau, however, he is shut down and told that he is nosy or to mind his business. As they rehearse the scene, something from an unnamed Australian play, Sestero realizes that the second they go off book, Wiseau can't remember a single line no matter how many times they've rehearsed the scene. When they performed it for their class, their teacher absolutely hated it and yelled at them. Through their time together, Sestero got a rundown of Wiseau's shenanigans in Los Angeles, where incidentally, Wiseau rented an apartment he rarely used. Sestero was interested in moving to Los Angeles, and Wiseau offered the apartment to him for $200 a month. Sestero moved to L.A. officially 18 days after first seeing Wiseau's apartment and soon signed with talent agent Iris Burton. Settling in L.A., Sestero slowly accrued more and a lot better acting credits and made other friends, which made Wiseau super jelly to the point where he threatened to evict Sestero from the apartment. In fact, in order to get a SAG card, the Actors Union membership card, Wiseau produced and starred in a commercial for his own company. This was out of jealousy, when Greg got his. At this point, Greg Sestero was becoming increasingly uncomfortable with his relationship with Tommy Wiseau. After watching the talented Mr. Ripley for the first time, for example, Sestero was struck by how similar Wiseau was to the title character, which if you haven't seen that movie... It's not a compliment. However, when Wiseau saw the same film, instead of recognizing some of his more, let's say, eccentricities, he was deeply impressed by the film and became obsessed with creating a work just as emotionally poignant. Soon after, Wiseau virtually disappeared from Sestero's life for about nine months, during which time their occasional phone calls indicated that Wiseau had become depressed. But he eventually returned to Los Angeles with a finished script for his film, The Room. The film included a character, 
Mark, named after the actor who played Mr. Ripley, Matt Damon. Wiseau had, unsurprisingly, misremembered his name. Tommy Wiseau had originally written The Room as a stage play before adapting it into a 500-page book, before eventually making it into a script when no one wanted the book. In order to retain all creative control, Wiseau planned to produce the film himself. To this day, it is not known exactly what inspired Wiseau to write The Room, as he staunchly refused to tell anyone. I did not hit her. It's not true. It's bullshit. I did not hit her. I did not. Oh, hi, Mark. Oh, hey, Johnny. What's up? I have a problem with Lisa. She said that I hit her. <sighs> what? Well, did you? No, it's not true. Don't even ask. What's new with you? Well, I'm just sitting up here thinking, you know. I got a question for you. Yeah. You think girls like to cheat like guys do? What makes you say that? I don't know. I don't know. I'm just... I'm just thinking. I don't have to worry about that because Lisa's loyal to me. Yeah, man, you never know. People are very strange these days. I used to know a girl. She had a dozen guys. One of them found out about it, beat her up so bad she ended up in a hospital on Guerrero Street. <laughs> what a story, Mark. Yeah, you can say that again. I'm so happy I have you as my best friend, and I love Lisa so much. Yeah, man. Yeah, you are very lucky. Well, maybe you should have a girl, Mark. Yeah. Yeah, maybe you're right. Maybe I have one already. As I mentioned earlier, Tommy Wiseau was already very wealthy by the time he and Greg Sestero met. How he made that money is completely unknown. In addition to the things I mentioned earlier, Wiseau also told Entertainment Weekly that he was rich because he imported leather jackets from Korea, as well as real estate sales in Los Angeles and San Francisco. What parts of any of this is true is unknown. Whatever the reason, Wiseau has a bottomless pit of money, and he was about to spend a lot of it. The plot, quote unquote, of this movie is thus, because I feel like a lot less people have seen this movie than maybe Rocky Horror. Basically, Wiseau plays a banker named Johnny, whom lives with his much younger wife, Lisa. Soon the two are involved in a love triangle involving Johnny's best friend, Mark. Wiseau spent $6 million to make The Room, which is about $8.5 million today, which for what the film is and looks like is just obscene. For example, the movie Saw, which was made only a few years later, was done with a budget of $1.2 million and was also a feature-length debut for the director of that film. It also looks a thousand times better, and most of it took place in a dirty bathroom place. Wiseau stated that the film was super expensive because many members of the cast and crew had to be replaced. Wiseau also made numerous poor decisions during filming that unnecessarily inflated the film's budget. He built sets for sequences that could have been filmed on location, purchased unnecessary equipment, standard practice on an independent film is to rent, he bought it all, including two 35mm cameras and one digital one because he didn't know what the difference was or really anything about filmmaking, despite claiming that he'd taken filmmaking classes and then filmed scenes multiple times using different sets and actors. Wiseau said he chose a 35mm camera and a digital one because he wanted to be the first director to film an entire movie simultaneously in two formats, which was the reason he ultimately gave for the purchase of the two different types 
types of cameras. He achieved this by using a custom-built apparatus that had both cameras side-by-side and required two crews to operate, doubling the crew cost. At the end of the day, only the 35mm footage was used in the final edit, and doing this was at the end of the day just a very creative way to piss away a ton of money. When filming actually did occur, which was rare for a multitude of reasons, Wiseau frequently forgot his lines, you know, the ones that he wrote himself, and blocking, which is his planned movement within the scene, resulting in minutes-long dialogue sequences taking hours or days to shoot. Most of Wiseau's lines had to be dubbed or recorded in after the fact, and it's very obvious if you watch the film that this is the case. Wiseau's actions further caused the film's cost to skyrocket, according to Sestero. Also, the original script was significantly longer than the one used for shooting and featured a series of lengthy monologues, which obviously Wiseau couldn't give because he couldn't remember his lines. The script is ultimately edited on set by the cast and script supervisor Sandy Schler, who found much of the dialogue completely batshit and did some amending. He had to do this without seeing the full script, mind you, as Wiseau refused to let anyone see it in its entirety, which unless you're in a high budget super secret movie is pretty much unheard of. Usually the cast and most of the crew gets the entire script. In fact, later, Schler would claim that it was really him that did most of the directing of the film, as Wiseau didn't know what the hell he was doing. An anonymous cast member also told Entertainment Weekly that the script contained, quote, stuff that was just unsayable. I know it's hard to imagine there was stuff that was worse, but there was. Sestero mentions that Wiseau was adamant, characters say their lines as written, but that several cast members slipped in ad-libs that made the final cut. Sestero also had to talk Wiseau into changing some of the crazier stuff for the sake of sanity. Much of the dialogue in the room is repetitive, especially Johnny's. His character begins almost every conversation with, oh, hi, to dismissively end conversations, because I doubt the dude's ever had a normal conversation. Many characters use the phrase, don't worry about it. And almost every male character in the film discusses Lisa's physical attractiveness, including an unnamed character whose only line is, Lisa looks hot tonight. In The Disaster Artist, Sestero also recalls that Wiseau planned a sub- plot in the film in which Johnny is revealed to be a vampire because of Wiseau's fondness for vampires. Honestly, that might have made this movie better, not gonna lie. When it came to casting, Wiseau selected actors from thousands of headshots, but somehow managed to amass a cast of mostly newbies whom had never been in a feature-length film. Each character also had several understudies, which is unheard of in film. Theater, yes. Film, no. Sestero had agreed to work as a part of the production crew only at first as a favor to Wiseau, but eventually agreed to play the character of Mark after Wiseau fired the original actor on the first day of film. Filming. Sestero was uncomfortable filming the sex scenes he was in and was allowed to keep his jeans on while shooting them. Sexy. Juliet Danielle, whom played Lisa, was fresh to Los Angeles from Texas when she took on the role, which might explain how that poor thing unwittingly ended up in this shit show. Wiseau said that Danielle was originally one of three or four understudies for the Lisa character and was selected after the original actress left the production. The original actress cast, according to Sestero, was of Latin descent and came from an unidentified South American country. According to Danielle, the actress was closer to Wiseau's age with a, quote, random accent. 
When asked about the film, Danielle corroborates that multiple actors were dismissed from the production prior to filming, including another actress hired to play Michelle. Kyle Vogt, who played Peter, told the production team that he only had a limited amount of time for the project, so not all of his scenes were filmed by the time his schedule ran out. Despite the fact that Peter has to play a pivotal role in the climax, when Vogt left the production, his lines in the last half of the film were given to another actor whose character is never introduced, explained, or addressed by name. Principal photography, shooting for you non-industry peeps, lasted four months, which is a very long time to be in this kind of production hell. Shooting took place mainly on the Burns and Sawyer soundstage in Los Angeles, with some second unit shooting occurring in San Francisco. Burns and Sawyer is only a few blocks away from the Forest Lawn Cemetery, and I find that proximity amusing because after a few bad days on set, I've certainly wished for death. Between takes, the cast and crew did find ways to break up the time, for example, playing a game, trying to guess how old and where Wiseau was from. The many rooftop sequences were shot on the soundstage, and exteriors of San Francisco were green-screened in, which is very, very obvious. I mean, as someone who grew up in the Bay Area and has lived in L.A. for 11 years, I can say with a lot of confidence that there are rooftops in Los Angeles where you can cheat San Francisco. Also, they could have just done it in San Francisco since they did photography up there anyway. But as you can probably tell by now, logic was not the name of the game here. Altogether, the film employed over 400 people, in which Wiseau is credited as actor, writer, producer, director, and executive producer. To make the credits even more strange, other executive producer credits included Chloe Leitsky, Wiseau's English as a Second Language tutor, whom didn't even work on the film according to Sestero, and Drew Caffrey, whom had been an entrepreneurial mentor to Wiseau and had died in 1999, three years before production even began. As mentioned earlier, Wiseau had loads of problems with his behind-the-camera team, shockingly, and claims to have replaced the entire crew four times. He also assigned multiple responsibilities to several crew members, a process Sestero describes in the book as sandwiching that frequently resulted in shooting delays. Aside from playing the role of Mark, Sestero worked as the film's line producer and helped with casting, assisted Wiseau, a lot of which had to do with getting his ass to set in a timely manner, and mediating a lot of blow-ups. Schler, the script supervisor, also served as a first assistant director, who was basically the person responsible for taking any non-creative burden off the director while shooting and making sure that every shot and scene planned for the day is completed on time. So you know, an important role as a script supervisor who makes sure that the script is being covered in the takes. So yeah, it's a pretty important role and they didn't have anybody doing that. The Burns and Sawyer sales representative, Peter Anway, the one who sold Wiseau the shitload of equipment he didn't need, acted as another assistant to Wiseau. Mercifully, after four months, the film wrapped, and some poor editor managed to scrap it together. I couldn't find much of anything about that, but I can only imagine. Oh, that jerk Harold. He wants me to give him a share of my house. That house belongs to me. He has no rights. I am not giving him a penny. Who does he think he is? He's your brother. He is always bugging me about my house. Fifteen years ago, we agreed that house belongs to me. Now the value of the house is going up and he's seeing dollar signs. Everything goes wrong at once. Nobody wants to help me, and I'm dying. You're not dying, Mom. I got the results of the test back. 
I definitely have breast cancer. Once the film was completed, Wiseau shopped the film around Hollywood in the hopes of finding a distributor, basically a big studio that gets the film into theaters. It did not go well. In fact, when the room was submitted to Paramount Pictures for consideration, the film was turned down within 24 hours. Typically, that process takes a couple of weeks. So yeah, that was a real hard no on Paramount's part. Because of this, the film was promoted almost exclusively through a single billboard in Hollywood, located on Highland, just north of Fountain Avenue, featuring an image Wiseau refers to as Evil Man, an extreme close-up of his own face with one eye in mid-blink. As the disaster artist, film director James Franco put it, quote, It looked like an ad for a cult. Although more conventional artwork was created for the film, featuring the main characters' faces emblazoned over the Golden Gate Bridge, Wiseau chose the evil man photo for what he regarded as its provocative quality. The image led many passersby to believe that the movie was a horror film. I mean, it's definitely a horrific film, but not for the reasons he thought would lure them to the theater. The billboard would remain up for nearly five years at an estimated cost of $300,000. In doing so, it became kind of a weird tourist attraction in Los Angeles. When asked how he managed to afford to keep the billboard up for so long in such a prominent location, Wiseau responded, quote, well, we like the location and we like the billboard, so we feel that people should see the room. Wiseau also paid for a small television and print campaign in and around Los Angeles and hired a publicist in his efforts to promote and self-distribute the film after it was turned down by Paramount. The room eventually premiered on June 27th, 2003 at the Lemley Fair Fairfax, and Fallbrook locations in Los Angeles. Additionally, Wiseau arranged a screening for the cast and the press at one of the venues, renting a spotlight to sit in front of the theater, and arriving in a limousine and wearing a fancy suit. Ticket buyers were given a free copy of the film's soundtrack on CD, which had been composed by a Loyola Marymount music professor and featured 29 tracks. Robin Paris, whom played Michelle, Lisa's best friend in the film, noted that the audience laughed throughout the film, and Variety reporter Scott Foundis, whom was also in attendance, would write that much of the audience left during the screening, demanding refunds. The room was unanimously panned by critics for its poor acting, especially YSOs, and poor pretty much everything else. There were inconsistencies a mile long, plot holes, weird tangents and scenes, and logical inconsistencies which when combined make this film absolutely hilarious. Wiseau would later claim that these were intentional, and I don't think anyone actually believes that. There's no way. The film has been described by several publications as one of the worst films ever made. The Room played for the next two weeks in Los Angeles, grossing about $1,900 before it was pulled from circulation by Wiseau. Toward the end of its run, the Lemley Fallbrook Theater displayed two signs on the inside of the ticket window in relation to the film. One read, No Refunds! And another cited a blurb from an early review, which read, quote, This film is like getting stabbed in the head. Despite the film's failure to enjoy success, as well as its terrible reviews, Wiseau still submitted it to be considered for the Academy Awards. Shockingly, it was nominated for none. But since it qualified for the Oscars, it's in the Academy's database. 
Despite disdain from critics, the film retrospectively received ironic acclaim from audiences for its perceived shortcomings, with some viewers calling it the best worst movie ever. This was in part due to local students, whom would email Wiseau after getting his information from the infamous billboard. It all started during one showing in the second week of its run, when one of the few audience members in attendance was Five Second Films' Michael Ruslet, who found humor in the film's poor dialogue and production values. After treating the screening as his, quote, own private mystery science theater, a popular show in which characters and silhouette on screen roast a terrible movie, and began encouraging friends to join him for future showings to all also mock the film. What Rousselet unintentionally started was a word-of-mouth campaign that resulted in about 100 people attending the film's final screening. Rousselet and his friends saw the film, quote, four times in three days, and it was in these initial screenings that many of the room's traditions were born, such as the throwing of spoons because of a photograph on Johnny's table of a spoon, and footballs during the scene when three male characters inexplicably play catch with a football wearing tuxedos. After the film was pulled from theaters, those who had attended the final showing began emailing Wiseau, telling him how much they had enjoyed the film. Confused, but encouraged by the volume of messages he received, Wiseau booked a single midnight screening of The Room in June 2004, which proved successful enough that he booked a second showing in July and a third in August. These screenings proved to be even more successful and were followed by monthly screenings on the last Saturday of the month which began selling out and continued up until the theater was sold in 2012. Wiseau frequently made appearances at these screenings and often engaged with fans afterwards. On the fifth anniversary of the film's premiere, it sold out every screen at the Sunset Five, and both Tommy Wiseau and Greg Sestero did Q&As after. Like I said, fans interact with the film in a similar fashion to Rocky Horror. They dress up as their favorite character, throw plastic spoons, toss footballs, and yell insulting comments about the quality of the film, as well as lines from the film itself. And as a result, Wiseau has traveled the world, spreading the fervor of the room and its midnight movie charm like a cinematic plague. The Room was released on DVD on November 4th, 2003, and Blu-ray in December 2012. If you like more chaos, the DVD's special features include an interview with Wiseau, who is asked questions by Sestero off-screen. A few of Wiseau's answers are dubbed in, like they are in the movie, although it is evident that the dub responses match what he was originally saying. Wiseau, of course, fails to answer several of the questions and giving non-answers instead. Wiseau announced plans in April 2011 for a 3D version of The Room. So far, that has not happened. Of course, in 2017, James Franco wrote and directed an adaptation of Sestero's book, The Disaster Artist, in which he played Tommy Wiseau. His brother Dave plays Greg Sestero. The film won several awards, including Best Musical or Comedy at the Golden Globes. And of course, Tommy was there at the ceremony to bask in the glory of the film about his life's masterpiece. He may be responsible for the worst movie ever made, but the amount of joy he's brought people is palpable. Greg Sestero probably put it best when he said, quote, Tommy Wiseau intended The Room to be a serious American drama, but it became something else entirely. A perfect, literal comedy of errors. I can think of no better way to end than with that. Links in the bio if you want to watch the film. I highly recommend you do so with your funniest friend. I never hit you. You shouldn't have any secrets from me. 
I'm your future husband. You sure about that? Maybe I'll change my mind. Don't talk like that. What do you mean? What do you think? Women change their minds all the time. <laughs> you must be kidding, aren't you? Look, I don't want to talk about it. I'm going to go upstairs and wash up and go to bed. How dare you talk to me like that? You should tell me everything. I can't talk right now. Why, Lisa? Why, Lisa? Please talk to me, please. You're part of my life. You are everything. I could not go on without you, Lisa. You're scaring me. You're lying. I never hit you. You are tearing me apart, Lisa. Why are you so hysterical? Do you understand life? Do you? And that's going to do it for this week. If there's anything you'd like me to cover in the future, please reach out on social media, where I also post photos for each episode. At Tinsel Factory Pod on Instagram, at Tinsel underscore Factory on Twitter, on Facebook at The Tinsel Factory, or you can always email me at TinselFactoryPod at gmail.com. I'm relying on word of mouth to get this podcast out there, so if you could please rate, review, and subscribe so that other people can find this podcast, that would be a huge help. In order to keep making the podcast, I've also set up a support page, the link of which you can find in the show notes. If you can help me out in any way, I'd very much appreciate it. I've also got merch. Check it out at the link in the show notes. Next week, we're covering the making and cult classic status of the witchcraft film, The Craft. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, that's a wrap.